Like you turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6. <clears throat> Beginning in chapter 6, we have the account of the tribulation period, or what is called Daniel's 70th week. Seven years of judgment like the earth has never seen, and the details of this period will run from chapter 6 through chapter 19. And the events of the tribulation period will be described in terms of three series of judgments. First, there will be seven seal judgments, and then there will be seven trumpet judgments, and then there will be seven bowl judgments. And just to give you sort of a general outline of that, the seven seals we will read about in chapter 6, verse 1, through chapter 8, verse 1. The seven trumpets we will read about beginning in chapter 8, verse 2, and running through chapter 14 and verse 20. And then the seven bowls will begin in chapter 15 and verse 1, and run through chapter 19 and verse 21. And what we will find is that the seventh seal really contains the seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpet contains the seven bowls. So these judgments sort of flow out of each other. So when we get to the seventh seal, which we expect to be the last, what we're going to find in chapter 8, verse 1, is that there's just silence. And then out of that silence comes seven trumpet judgments. And then with the seven, seventh trumpet comes another series of judgments, the seven bowl judgments. Maybe to help you understand that, let me just give you a little, little something to, to hook your thoughts to. Think of a, a telescope that is compressed. And you see a telescope, and then you, you open it up, and out comes another section, and then a third section. And that may help you to think of what's involved here, because it's seven seals, but out of those seven seals comes another section, and that's the trumpet judgments. And then there's a third section, and that is the bowl judgments. Or if on the 4th of July you were over in Jackson, and you saw the fireworks, and you see they, they would explode into the sky, and then they would begin to trail down, and, and, and a few of them, as they trailed down, one of the trailers would explode. And then they would trail down, and then one of the trailers would explode. And maybe that's an idea as well. Contained in that one explosion or display, there were three def separate explosions. And that's kind of the idea here. We have uh, the seal judgments, and then the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments. They're really all contained in these seal judgments, but they come out of them. Chapters 4 and 5 form the prologue to all of this. And we saw that chapters 4 and 5 took place in heaven where we see the Lord God seated on a throne and he's holding a sealed scroll. And we said that that sealed scroll was the title deed to the earth. And the search is underway for the rightful heir, the one who has paid the purchase price, the one who is worthy. And we see the Lord Jesus depicted in chapter 5 as a lamb standing as if slain as he comes and he takes the scroll out of the hand of him who sits on the throne. And in chapter 6, we see the results as he begins to break the seals and reclaim the earth for himself and for his own. And we're going to look at six seals this morning. They're contained in chapter 6, and we'll simply use that as our outline. The first seal is in verses 1 and 2. Notice verse 1. And I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, come. 
Now notice, it's the Lamb who opens the seals. Christ is the executioner of judgment. And as he opens the first seal, John hears one of the four living creatures. And those are those four angels we saw in Revelation chapter 4, specially commissioned angels before the throne of God. One of them speaks, and he says his voice is like thunder. And what does thunder indicate? Thunder indicates that a storm is coming. And he says, come. Now, the King James says, come and see. But it's actually just one Greek word, and it's the Greek word that means come or go or proceed. And I personally don't think he's talking to John. I don't think he's hollering at John with a voice of thunder telling John to come and see. I think he's talking to somebody else. And the individual he's talking to is described in verse 2. And it says, I looked, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, these first four seals are related in that with the opening of each, one of the four living creatures is going to command a horseman to go forth. And these are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. They were not football players for Notre Dame. These are the fellows right here where that, where that came from. And I don't think that these are literal horses with literal riders. And the reason I say that is down in verse 8 where it says, And I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death. So the fourth rider is Death. So I know these are not actual literal horses and horsemen. What they are are four sort of expressions or representations of the type of judgment that is going to befall the earth. Now, the last three horsemen, the second, third, and fourth seal, are fairly self-explanatory. The first is a little more difficult to pin down. Notice what it says about him in verse 2. He's wearing a crown, and that's the Greek word stephanos. It means a victor's crown, a conqueror's crown. He's wearing a crown. Secondly, we see that he's riding a white horse, and a white horse is a symbol of victory. Whenever a Roman conqueror rode into the city, he always rode in on a white charger. And then we can notice also about him, he's holding a bow, and it tells us his purpose is that he went out conquering and to conquer. But I want you to notice something. The nature of his ride is going to be peace. And I want you to notice verse 4, because it says, And another, a red horse, went out, and to him was set, who sat on it, and it was granted to take peace from the earth. So with the second horseman, peace is taken from the earth. So that, for that reason, I know that during the ride of this first horseman, there will be peace on the earth. So this first rider is going to be a peaceful conqueror. Now, who is he? Well, there's probably been more speculation on this verse than any other verse in the book of Revelation because it doesn't really tell us a whole lot here. And we're kind of left to kind of come to some kind of understanding on our own. Now, one of the very popular views is that this is Christ. 
And the reason that people say this is Christ is because when we come to Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11, we're going to find that Christ comes riding out of heaven on a white horse. And so we say, well, there's Christ on a white horse. Here's an individual on the white horse. This must be Christ. I don't believe this is Christ. And the reason is that they're really the only parallel between this rider and Christ in Revelation chapter 19 is the white horse. And if you look carefully at Revelation chapter 19 and compare it, you'll find that there Christ is wearing many crowns. And it's the Greek word diadems that he's wearing. If you look carefully in, in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 15, you'll find that he has a sword rather than a bow. And if you'll just think about the chronolo chronology of the situation, Christ is coming there to reign. Here we're at the beginning of the tribulation. This is a strange time for Christ to be coming. And what we'll find is that he comes, this writer comes, he establishes peace, but immediately after he establishes peace, another writer comes and the peace is taken away. So I can't see Christ coming and establishing a peace that can't last. And then also, if you look carefully, you'll find that Christ is already in this scene. Because in verse 1 it says, And when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, there's Christ, the Lamb. And then the rider comes out of heaven. And so, if this is not Christ, who is it? Well, let me suggest who it is. I suggest that it's the counterfeit Christ that he's talking here about the Antichrist, the impersonator, the imposter, the one who rides the white horse appearing to be Christ, but he's not. And he's going to ride across the first part of the tribulation conquering peacefully. He's got a bow, but he doesn't have any arrows. He's not going to be destroying anyone. He's going to be conquering through di diplomacy. In fact, the bow may even represent long-range weapons, which was about the longest-range weapons they had back then, which would speak to our day, because in our day we have long-range weapons which really tend to promote the idea of negotiating. And so he's going to negotiate peace. And that's really in keeping with what we find back in Daniel. If you keep your finger in Revelation 6 and go back to Daniel chapter 9, We find in Daniel chapter 9, four verses describing Daniel's 70th week, describing this tribulation period. And the final week is described in verse 27. And it says, And he, speaking of the prince that it talked about in verse 26, which is this Antichrist, and he will make a firm covenant with the many, and that's the Jews, for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will essentially break the covenant. And so what we have here is at the beginning of the seven years, the Antichrist is going to make a peace agreement with Israel. And that's really what begins the tribulation period. And so right here at the outset of the tribulation period in Revelation chapter 6, we find this one coming on a white horse and he's conquering peacefully. And what many people think that the Antichrist is going to do is that he's going to settle the Israeli-Arab dispute. And of course, that would be easy to see today if somebody could come along and, and resolve that thing. 
uh, sign an agreement, a covenant with Israel to resolve the problems in the Middle East. And of course, as you, as you look on with what's going on today in Kuwait, if you, if you look very carefully, you'll realize that the problem there really has to do with Israel as well. If you listen to the language carefully, we're over there because of oil. But Iraq is involved because of Israel. And, and if you listen carefully, the U.S. says you need to get out of Kuwait. And they say what? We'll get out of Kuwait when Israel gets out of our land. And it always points back to Israel. And it's always a matter of getting them out of the way. And so if somebody could come on the scene, a peaceful conqueror who could sign an agreement with Israel and bring peace. And that's what's going to happen at the beginning of the tribulation period. And it's not too hard to imagine today in our world because the world desperately is looking for peace. And it's not too difficult to imagine a world ruler coming on the scene whose message is peace, rising to power in this world. But as with all man-made peace, it's short-lived, and we come to this against his brother. And so in Israel there will be peace, and then shortly thereafter there will be war. Man-made peace never lasts. Think about it. Only a few weeks ago, we were celebrating the breakdown of the Berlin Wall. And the theme everywhere was peace. And today we are sending troops to Saudi Arabia and we are poised to attack. And the theme is war. Because man-made peace never lasts. Just as quickly as it comes, it goes. And that will be the case in that coming day because the second horseman brings war. And then there's a third seal, and that's in verses 5 and 6. And notice verse 5, And when he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. The third horse is a black horse. Now, the color doesn't tell us a whole lot, but we're told that this rider has a pair of scales in his hand. Now, what are these scales? Look at verse 6. And I heard, as it were, a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. These are the scales of the marketplace. And your Bible may say a penny here, it's the Greek word denarius, and a denarius was equal to a day's wage. A quart of wheat or a measure of wheat was equal to the wheat of one meal. And so what he's saying here is that a person will have to work all day long to buy one meal. Or if he'll settle for barley, which was less expensive, he would work all day to have three meals. And so essentially what he's saying is you've got to work all day long just to buy a loaf of bread. What's he talking about? He's talking about famine. And so with this third rider, famine is going to come on the scene. And the irony is that he says at the end of verse 6, don't touch the oil and the wine. And oil and wine were luxury items. And so you're not going to be able to buy a loaf of bread, but you'll have all kinds of luxury items, oil and wine, which you can't live on, 
And that's sort of the irony of the situation. It's going to be the basics, the things that you have to live on that won't be available in that day. And so the third stage of the tribulation will bring famine. And of course, we don't really feel it in our world, but it's already a problem in our world. Uh, it's estimated that 400 million people in our world are on the verge of starvation. And 10,000 people per day die of starvation and starvation-related problems. Now, that's not hard to imagine how that would become a world dilemma if you had world war at the same time you had world famine. It would happen. Of course, we don't feel that in the United States. In fact, I saw one article that said America spends $900 million a year on dog food. Uh, we don't really feel that. I can say that because I don't have a dog right now. Uh, but we, we don't really feel the impact of that worldwide, but in that day, it's going to be a worldwide situation where famine will be felt throughout the world. And then the fourth seal in verses 7 and 8. And when he broke the fourth seal... I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. And I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, or a pale horse. And he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. And authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. The fourth horse is a pale horse, literally a sickly green horse, corpse-like in color. And that's fitting because we don't have to guess who the rider is, he tells us. The rider is death. And following closely after, maybe even his passenger on the horse, is Hades or hell. And so the picture is that death kills men and hell scoops them up. Death claims the body, and hell claims the soul. And the method he describes for us in verse 8 is by sword and by famine and by pestilence or death. And those were the second, third, and fourth horsemen. First is peace, but then he says the way that death operates is by sword and by famine and by pestilence. And then he adds a fourth thing, and that is, he says by the wild beasts. And apparently with a world war going on and with world famine, wild beasts are going to be driven from their habitat and they're even going to be coming out and they're going to be hungry and they're going to be killing men. There's the method and he gives the number which is rather astounding. He says, death will be given authority over one-fourth of the earth one-fourth of mankind. Now, if the population of the world is five billion people, which is a rough estimate, that means on this occasion, over one billion people are going to be killed. Now, that's going to be the greatest destruction of human life ever recorded in history. The population in Noah's day was undoubtedly, undoubtedly, far less than this. It's been estimated that in all the wars of the history of the world, there have been less than 100 million people killed. In all the, world, all the wars in history, 
Less than 100 million people have been killed. This is going to be a situation that will involve over 1 billion people. And they will be killed in the space of, at most, three and a half years. Think about it. A billion people killed in less than three and a half years. Now, that would not be, we would not be able to even imagine that in the past. If we lived during the time of, say, the Revolutionary War, can you imagine trying to kill a billion people with muskets? It would be an impossibility. But in our day, that sounds rather feasible with the kind of weapons that we see in warfare today. In 1983, a group of 40 scientists met together to study the impact that a nuclear war would have on our world. Included in those scientists was the infamous Carl Sagan. They concluded that if we have an all-out nuclear war, and really it's hard to imagine any other kind, I can't imagine, you know, one country knowing that you sent your nuclear arsenal and saying, oh, they sent it, we, we surrender. Uh, we're going to have either an all-out nuclear war or probably no war at all. But they assumed using less than half of the existing arsenal, they estimated in 1983 that 750 million people would die from the blast alone. 750 million people. And then they said, quote, an all-out nuclear war would envelop the world in darkness and cold that could starve the human race into existence. Isn't that interesting? If we have a nuclear war, their estimate is that we're going to have a famine immediately afterwards, that the effects of that are going to so affect the, the ozone layer and everything that famine is going to result. And their estimate in 1983 was 750 million. Uh, that's close to a quarter of the population. And so as we read about this fourth seal, we're going to find that that's actually going to happen with this fourth horseman. Then we move to the fifth seal, and that's in verses 9 to 11. Notice verse 9, And when he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. Now with the opening of this fifth seal, we move away from the four horsemen, and we even move away from the scene on earth. We switch to a scene in heaven, and here are some souls that hell didn't get. And how did they get there? He says... They weren't casualties of war. He says, the end of verse 9, they were martyrs. They were slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. Here's a group of people, and they are souls in heaven. They have been martyred. And notice where they are. They're under the altar. Now, the altar was the place of sacrifice. The... the the animal was placed on top of the altar, was sacrificed, and we're told in Exodus chapter 20, 29 and also in Leviticus chapter 4 and verse 7 that the blood was taken out of that animal and it was poured underneath the altar. The animal was sacrificed on top. That was a place of judgment. 
but the blood was taken and it was poured out underneath the altar. And so underneath the altar would seem to represent the place of forgiveness, where the blood was poured out, the place of rest and forgiveness. That's where these souls are found. They're not on top of the altar where judgment would be. They're under the altar where the blood is poured out, where forgiveness is. Now, who are these people? If the church has been resurrected and changed into glorified bodies and raptured into heaven at this point, then who are these people? Who are these souls in heaven? Well, they must then come out of the tribulation period. They must be people who have come out of the tribulation. You say, well, you mean people are going to be saved during the tribulation? Yes. In fact, look at chapter 7 and verse 9. Because the interesting thing, and I'm really taken away from next week's message, but the interesting thing about the tribulation is that it's going to be a period of unsurpassed judgment, but it's also going to be a period of unsurpassed revival. Unsurpassed revival. Look at Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and so forth, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Great multitude. Nobody could count them. Come over to verse 13. And one of the elders answered and said to me, Who are these people? And I said, I don't know. You tell me. And verse 14 says, And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This group of people that nobody could even count are people who have come out of the tribulation and have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. What a revival is going to take place during the tribulation period. And Revelation chapter 13 and verse 15 tells us that if anybody doesn't worship the image of the beast, he's going to be put to death. And so we've got people being saved during the tribulation period, but it's going to cost them something to trust Christ because the price is going to be their lives. And so it's not surprising that here in Revelation chapter 6, we, we find some martyrs in heaven already. And still early in the tribulation period, but we've got martyrs there. And they're represented as souls under the altar. Now, what are they doing? Come back to Revelation chapter 6, verse 10. It says, And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, wilt thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? What are they doing? They're praying. They're saying, how long, O Lord, until you bring vengeance on our enemies? How long until you repay the ones who have put us to death? That's an interesting prayer. You know, that's not really a typical New Testament prayer. Remember Stephen? When he's being stoned to death in Acts chapter 7 and verse 60, what's he saying? He's saying, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. That's the attitude that we see during the church age to be prayed toward your enemies. Christ said, love your enemies. Christ expressed it on the cross himself. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's the prayer of the church. You know, what's interesting about this prayer is that it sounds a lot like an Old Testament prayer. 
I think the reason is because it is an Old Testament prayer. Where are we? We're in Daniel's 70th week. The church is a parenthesis. We get 69 weeks of the history of Israel. We get the parenthesis of the church. The church is gone. Now we're in that last final period of God's dealing with Israel, and we're really resorting back to the Old Testament economy, in essence. And so we see a prayer that reflects many of the psalms that you'll read about how the psalm writer will, will pray for vengeance on the enemy. In fact, there's a prayer in the Old Testament that I found that's very close to this one. If you look in Zechariah chapter 1, Zechariah is a book full of prophecy. In Zechariah chapter 1 and verse 12, we find the angel of the Lord is praying on behalf of Israel, and the angel of the Lord is, of course, Christ in this instance. And he's praying on behalf of Israel, and notice what he, what he prays. Zechariah chapter 1 and verse 12, it says, Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long wilt thou have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, with which thou hast been indignant these seventy years? How long are you going to continue to allow Babylon to be in control and how long until you finally show compassion on your people? And how long until the 70 years are finally up? And of course, they were praying about the 70 years that they experienced in Babylon. It was out of those 70 years, remember, that Daniel got his vision of the 77s in the rest of the history of Israel. And so that really parallels the prayer here. And we find these souls under the altar, and they're essentially saying, How long, Lord? How long until you overthrow Babylon and bring compassion back on your people and set up your kingdom again. That's the prayer. And then we see the answer in verse 11, and I love this. Revelation 6, 11, And there was given to, the, to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been should be completed also. They say, how long? And the Lord says, wait just a little longer. Rest just a little longer because the number of your fellow servants and brethren is not complete yet. You know what this tells me? This tells me that even during the tribulation period when the theme is going to be the judgment of God, that redemption is still the priority on the patient heart of God. His answer is, wait, because there are more that need to come in among the number. And those ones who are going to come are going to be put to death just like you were. And so the patient heart of God, even during the tribulation, he's waiting for those to come to salvation. And then we see the sixth seal. And that's in verses 12 to 17. And notice verse 12. It says, And I looked when he broke the sixth seal... And there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind, and the sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Now, some people take this figuratively. 
I see no reason to. What I read here sounds pretty serious. I mean, it sounds like the collapse of the universe to me. I mean, he mentions six catastrophic events. He says there's going to be a great earthquake, and he describes the whole scene like uh, a fig tree with unripe fruit being shaken so hard by the wind that that unripe fruit that isn't ready to fall falls anyway. And that's the scene. Everything's going to be shaken. In fact, the word here for earthquake is the Greek word seismos, which means a shaking. And he says, not only will there be a great earthquake, but the sun will be darkened like sackcloth. And sackcloth was a black material used to make tents. The sun will become black. The moon will become like blood, red. Stars will fall to the earth. Now, I don't know if that means literal stars or a meteor shower or what. But uh, all of Chicken Little's fears are going to come true. They're going to come crashing down. And then he says, heaven is going to be opened, split apart like a scroll. Kind of like if you take a shade in your house and you pull it down and let go of it, there it goes. That's what the sky is going to do. It's like the sky is hooked up across and somebody's going to pull it and it's just going to open up completely. And then he says, every mountain and island will be moved. The whole topography of the earth is going to be changed. You say, wow, if that happened, I know I'd be on my knees repenting praying to God, calling out for mercy before God. Notice what men are going to do. Verse 15, And the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man, that includes everybody's name there, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Men, all social categories and classes, are going to flee to the mountains and hide themselves in caves in the mountains. And their only prayer is recorded in verses 16 and 17. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? This is going to occur, and men are going to flee to the mountains, hide in caves in the ground, and their only prayer is going to be to the mountains and to the rocks. And they're going to pray not to God, they're going to pray to the mountains and say, cover us up. And maybe if we get buried under a huge mountain, that one who sits on the throne and the lamb won't be able to find us. That's their prayer. You know, it's interesting to me that the thing that man fears the most in this incident is not the earthquake. It's not the stars falling out of heaven. It's the one who sits on the throne. And it's the wrath of the Lamb. I have to assume, and this is only my assumption, that when the sky is split apart on this occasion, that man is going to get a brief glimpse of heaven. And he's going to see the one sitting on the throne, and he's going to see the wrath of the Lamb. And that's going to cause him to go to the caves and the mountains to hide from his presence. Rather than repenting, man is going to flee and man is going to try to hide, but there will be nowhere to hide. And man really knows that because his question at the end of verse 17 is, who is able to stand? Who can stand? As we get a glimpse at the wrath of the Lamb, that's the question that comes out. Who can stand? Who can stand against that kind of wrath? You know, there's an answer to that question. 
There is a place to stand. There is a place to hide from the wrath of the Lamb. And the question that's asked at the end of verse six, chapter 6 is going to be answered in chapter 7. But if you'll just look over at Revelation chapter 7 and verse 14. At the end of verse 14, it talks about this group that's come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white. And notice, in the blood of the Lamb. There's some place to hide from the wrath of the Lamb, and that's in the blood of the Lamb. Isn't that beautiful? Those two phrases used so close together. Man's going to see the wrath of the Lamb and say, who can stand? The only one who can stand is the one who stands in the blood of the Lamb. And if you notice verse 15 of chapter 17, it talks about them standing. For this reason they are before the throne of God. They're standing before that same throne in the blood of the Lamb. And they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne shall spread his tabernacle over them. They'll hunger no more. They'll thirst no more. The sun won't beat on them or any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne shall be their shepherd. And he shall guide them to springs of the water of life. And God shall wipe every tear from their eyes. What a contrast. One day, men are going to stand. They're going to see a glimpse of the throne and the Lamb. And they're going to see his wrath. And they're going to flee to the mountains and try to hide because they'll say, who can stand? What a privilege it is today to be able to stand not in the wrath of the Lamb, but in the blood of the Lamb. And to stand before his throne as his servant. And to have that same Lamb as my shepherd who will wipe every tear from my eye. Fearful judgments are coming on this world. The writer of Hebrews said, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And Revelation chapter 6 is a striking reminder of that. But I can say to you this morning that it's a blessed thing to fall into the arms of a loving Savior. And what a privilege that is to know Him that way. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You for the privilege we enjoy that we don't deserve. And Lord, as we read about the accounts in this time of judgment, we know that we deserve to be the recipients of that judgment. But we can only stand and say thank you that the Lord Jesus took that judgment on the cross of Calvary, that he shed his blood that covers us. And Lord, we thank you that we're not going to have to face the wrath of the Lamb. But we know him now and will know him forever as our shepherd who will comfort us and care for us and wipe every tear from our eyes. We don't deserve that. And it sounds simplistic even to say thank you, but we do. And we pray that our lives might reflect the thankfulness we have in our hearts for Jesus' glory. Amen.